Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open in them to the Gospel of John, chapter 1? We're going to continue to exalt in the Lord this morning, now by exalting in His Word and the truths we see here. So I preached on this passage last week, uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, but I don't think you were listening well, so I will (laughs) preach on it again. It's not true. I wanted to spend a couple of weeks here because it's so rich. Last week we focused mostly on 19 through 28. Today we're going to focus on 29 through 34, but I'm going to read the whole thing just so that we have the context before us. So the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered him, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes, one, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, let's pray again. Now, Father, we have nothing else to talk about this morning. We have no other hope this morning. We have no one upon whom we must look this morning, save for Christ. We have no other answers. We have only the answer that's in Christ. We have no other life, only the life that is in Christ. We have nothing except for Christ. And in Him, we have everything. Oh, Father, I pray, we pray together that you would help us to behold that reality this morning. That you would give us eyes that see, undistracted hearts and minds. I pray that we would see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that we would leave here rejoicing in Him, confident in Him, 
trusting in none other than him, eager to follow him. Help me, I pray, to be careful with your word, to be clear with your word. Pray that you would move in this place through the preaching of your word and that you would help weary saints to find strength and unbelievers to turn with eyes of faith to you. We have no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is Jesus? What kind of answer would you give if someone asked you that just on the street, just came and said, hey, tell me, who is Jesus? What answer would you say? Here are 59 possible responses to that question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the Anointed One. He is our Advocate. He is the Author of our Faith. He is the Bridegroom. He is the Bright and Morning Star. He is our Blessed Hope. He is the Chosen One of God. He is the Christ, the Deliverer, the Door of the Sheep. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's eternal life. He is everlasting Father. He is the finisher of our faith. He is our friend. He is the gift of God, the good shepherd, the great God. He is the head of the church. He is the heir of all things. He is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is the I am, the image of the invisible God. He is the judge of all. He is King eternal. He is King of glory. He is king of righteousness. He is king of kings. Jesus is the last Adam, the life, the living bread, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of lords. He is the man of sorrows, the mediator, the mighty God, the name that is above every name, the only begotten son, the only wise God. He is the one who was pierced the Prince of Peace, the Redeemer, the Resurrection, the Life, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the true treasure, the truth, the unspeakable gift, the upholder of all things by the word of his power, Jesus is the way, he is the wisdom of God, he is the wonderful counselor, he is the word, he is the expressed image of his person, he is the yes and the amen to all the promises of God. If you have one that starts with Z, text it to me. That's a lot, isn't it? But we shouldn't stop at 59. 59 is not a round number. We should add one more to that list. I mean, you could add millions more to that list, but let's add one more to that list. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
in verse 29, John said, Behold, behold, the Lamb of God, and that's what I want us to do together today. I want us to behold. The word means to look. I want us to look with faith to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, again, week two of the testimony of John the Baptist. Last week, we focused more on what John the Baptist said about himself in relation to Jesus. John said he was not the Christ, nor the prophet, nor Elijah. Rather, he was the one, the voice, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's the guy with the broom, warming the ice in the path of the stone. This week, we go the other way, seeing what John the Baptist says about Jesus himself. This is after Jesus was baptized by John, which is this gospel doesn't record, but the other three do. This is after that, and I think that because John testifies in this passage to what he saw at that baptism. The Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, verse 32. The other three gospels record that happening. You can read that in those gospels. There's a footnote, probably a cross-reference about Jesus' baptism. They also record God's voice. From heaven, calling, this is my beloved son. And I think that's why John the Baptist calls him the son of God at the end. So, what we see in this passage happened shortly after that. And that event was the confirmation for John. God had made it clear who the Christ is. And John is testifying to that. Today we'll focus on two things. Two things that he says about Jesus. First, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And second, that he is the one who baptizes. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. With those two things, with those two lenses, we will behold the Lamb together this morning. And you might ask, is there anything practical in doing that? And mean anything practical for my day and for my week and for my life? And I find that when people ask me things like that, I find it very funny very odd, because this is my whole life. This is my ambition as a pastor, and the ambition, I believe, of every good Bible-believing, Christ-loving pastor is to help people to behold the Lamb, because we know that this is the most practical, the most life-giving, the most life-shaping, the most sin-destroying, anxiety-killing, hope-filling, helpful thing we could possibly do. I have no other message, ultimately, to preach. I have no other counsel to give. No other counsel to give. When you come to me because you're struggling emotionally, I'm going to do my best to help you behold the Lamb. Because that's, that's what will help you. When you come to me with a struggle with your marriage, in your marriage, you and your spouse, you come to me, I'm going to try and do my very best to help you and your spouse behold the Lamb of God. That's the help. It's all I've got. As a pastor, as a preacher, as a counselor, as a Christian, it's all I got. And thankfully, that is everything we need. It is immensely practical. I'll try to help you see that today. So today, we will behold the Lamb together. This is an interesting title for Jesus, isn't it? The Lamb I mean, I know, we've heard it our whole lives, so it doesn't strike us as interesting. It sounds very religious, but think of it. The Lamb of God. 
I read 59 other titles, most of which showed his might and his power and his glory. But to call the Son of God a lamb. Now I know, again, our ears are familiar with this language and it sounds good to us, but if you give it a moment and you've been around sheep, you can feel maybe the oddness of it. In fact, many, I read a lot of academics this week who felt like this is a bridge too far, that John the Baptist likely made up this language about Jesus. They attempted to make the case that John the Baptist simply invented the language. He thought it up on his own. It's an odd title, they thought. And so he thought it up in a vacuum. And to me, that is an incredible opinion. <laughs> it's like they've, they're not reading our Bible plan that we're reading together as a church. They've not read the Bible if they think that John the Baptist invented this language. It's not new to John. In fact, you see hints and shadows of this language all the way back in Genesis and all the way to Revelation. Some are more than hints. Let's, let's briefly see that together. The first time this language is really clearly used is in Genesis chapter 22 in the account of Abraham offering up Isaac. As you may recall, God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, Isaac. And Abraham, though he did not clearly understand what the Lord was up to, obeyed. He, he, took, he took with him Isaac. He took his son and he began to trek up the mountain where God had told him to go. And Isaac, who had apparently witnessed the sacrifices his father had done was confused. So let's read, I think it's displayed already, let's read Genesis chapter 22, verses 6 through 8 together. Or I'll read it, you don't have to, yeah. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, listen to this, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they both went together. And you know how the story goes. Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, raises up his knife, commits in his mind that he's going to plunge the knife into the heart of his son, but God stops him and says, don't, don't do anything to harm the boy. You have demonstrated your faith in me. And just then they noticed a ram that was caught in the thicket, right? And they sacrificed it instead. And Abraham names the place the Lord provides. That's where we get the phrase Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. Because the Lord, in fact, had provided his own sacrifice. Note the language. God himself will provide a lamb. Abraham was speaking more than he knew, way more than he knew. For this was a shadow of a substantial thing to come. The shadow is that God sent a ram to die in the place of Isaac. The substance is that God himself has provided the lamb, Christ, who would die in our place. God himself will provide a lamb, the lamb of God. Fast forward several generations seven, six-ish. And the people of God, they're in bondage in Egypt. 
And God has heard their cries, and he has determined that he would rescue them. So Israel's in Egypt. They're in bondage. Their, their, their plight is bitter. They cry out to God. He, hears their, he remembers his promise to them, and he determines that he will save them, deliver them. But Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has exalted his heart against God. And so the Lord sent a series of plagues to humble him and, he is a, and to glorify himself. And he is about to bring the worst plague ever, the death of all the firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt. And he has instructed each family among his people, Israel, to sacrifice a lamb. The Passover lamb, it becomes called. Each family was to apply the blood of this lamb to the, the doorpost and the lentil. Listen to how the Lord said it, okay? And this is Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. The Lord says, For I will pass, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And listen to this. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I mean, isn't that amazing? God said, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Judgment will pass over that house on account of the blood of the Lamb. That's another glorious shadow. There was death in every house in Egypt that night. Every house. No exception. Hebrew houses, Egyptian houses, there was death in every house. Either the firstborn died or the lamb. John the Baptist didn't make this language up. It was in the mind and the heart of God from the beginning. We could go to Isaiah 53, 7 that uses similar language. That Jesus, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, is silent so he opened not his mouth. Peter used this language as well. First Peter, it says we are saved not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or wrinkle. Paul used the language. And then finally, in Revelation, the language is used. We, we read this responsively this morning. I'm going to read a bigger portion of this passage at the end, but just note for now, Romans or Revelation 5.12, the angels of heaven shouted together, worthy is the lamb that was slain. John the Baptist didn't make it up. You know who did? God. So John sees Jesus coming in, coming to him rather, a day after testifying to this, this group of Jewish leaders that had sent him, and publicly he proclaims, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is revealing to his, the original hearers and to us the saving purposes of Jesus through his own sacrificial death. God himself would provide a lamb for the offering. And when the blood is applied, his judgment on sinners passes over. It was because the lamb who was slain. This language has everything to do with sacrifice. When you see the word lamb, 
the point and the picture is sacrifice. Substitutionary, like in our place, sacrifice of Christ. So, really, the gospel, the entire gospel is bound up in one sentence. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus takes it away from us by taking it onto himself and dying in our place as the substitute for us. He is the true Passover lamb. Now it says he takes away the sin of the world, and I think we have to wrestle with that a bit, don't we? He takes away the sin of the world. We have to wrestle with that because we know that many will staunch in their unbelief and ignorance perish in their sins. But here it says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. How do we reconcile those two things? I think John is saying something here that is similar to a theme that will become a theme in his gospel. Namely, that Jesus is not merely the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the world. He lays down his life, not merely for the Jewish people, but for his flock from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we'll see this come together in the passage I will read from Revelation. But we see it all through his gospel. He has other sheep, he says, and he will go out and gather them also. His eye, his saving eye is on the nation's. And that's why John the Baptist says he takes away the sin of the world. And by the way, I think that is the same sense that the same writer, John, son of Zebedee, the apostle, uses in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for sin. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation, the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Not in the sense that all men everywhere, whether believing or not, are now made right with God. Rather, he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world in the sense that all believers in Christ everywhere in the world from every ethnicity, have their sin problem decisively dealt with by the work of Christ. And that is a blessed confidence for us as we go to the nations with the gospel. As many of you know, my wife and I were missionaries to the Altai people group in Siberia and to the Buryats before that, but the Altai was the last bit of our time there. And many people there would say things like, you know, I'd be talking to them about Jesus, and they would say, that's the God of Americans. Jesus is the God of Americans. He's not the God of the Altai. We have our own gods. We have lots of them. We don't need your Jesus. We have our God. So he's the God of the Americans or the Westerners. To which I would say, no, friend, you, you, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm saying at all. Jesus is not the Savior of Americans or merely of Americans, or the Savior of Westerners, or the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of the Altai, and the Buryat, and the Tuvan, and the Saka, and the Taliabu, and the French, even the French, and the Samoan, and the Himba, and 
the Midwestern American. If anyone, anywhere, finds salvation, they find it in Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So we can boldly go to the nations that have completely different cultures and backgrounds and yes, even religions. And we can boldly go, not importing some Western religion to them to shake out their religion and replace it with ours. We boldly go proclaiming the one Savior of the world who died on the cross for their sin. The one true gospel which is for the whole world Isn't that precious? That ought to be precious to you, friend. It is for me. So that's that's the picture in one sentence. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Just as for Isaac and for the firstborn at Passover, Jesus is the Lamb. And just as John the Baptist cried out, look, the Lamb of God, I'm crying that out to you today. Look, friends, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't look anywhere else for hope or life or victory over your sin. Don't look anywhere else for purpose and for meaning and for satisfaction. Don't look to your bank account. Don't look to your own cleverness. Don't look to your schemes or the schemes of others. Don't look to your supposed righteousness, how good you are. Don't look to the religious ceremonies that you have gone through. You won't find, you won't find forgiveness in any of those places. You won't find satisfaction. You won't find life anywhere in those places. You must look to the Lamb. Now John says something else really important. Jesus not only takes away the sin of the world... He also, as per verse 33, baptizes with the Spirit. Remember, the people came asking John why he was baptizing, and he makes the contrast between his baptism, baptism of water, and Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. Picture this in your head. People would go down to the water where John was, and John would immerse them in water. That is, he would bring them under the water and then up again. The word baptized, baptizo, means to plunge or to immerse. They are immersed in water. There's no part of them. There's no part of them left dry. I've baptized really large people before, and I didn't get them all the way under, and so I did it again. (laughs) Because no part should be left dry. John's baptism was less than Jesus's in that his was, his was only with physical water. <clears throat> and Jesus baptized with the Spirit. John's baptism symbolized that they were truly repentant, that they were truly turning to God for his mercy and grace, that they needed to completely turn to God by faith. And that's what John the Baptist's baptism symbolized. That's why they went under the water. Jesus, through his work on the cross, does more. He completely immerses us in the Spirit. No part of us left dry. We are fully immersed into God 
and into his family. It's not symbolic. It's actual. It's an actual spiritual reality. The baptism we will do here next week is an outward display of the actual work that happened in Christ through the gospel. It will be like the display of an MRI. You know, without that display, it's important, without that display, no doctor could see what the MRI is showing, what's really going on on the inside. The display shows that, right? Without that display, you can't see it. It is important. Water baptism displays outwardly the work of God in us. What matters most, of course, is what happens in us by the Spirit through the work of Christ. There's some debate. There's some debate in the church today about when the baptism of the Spirit happens. Some argue that it is a second experience, separate from following and following from salvation. Some people believe that there there are genuine Christians, genuine believers who are saved, but who are not baptized with the Spirit. And I don't think the Scriptures hold that up. And listen, for example, to how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Paul said, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members are of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free And all were made to drink of the one Spirit. And this is one verse, but I think it's pretty clear. All who are in Christ by faith are in one Spirit, and they are all baptized into one body. All were made to drink of one Spirit. I think the baptizing work of the Spirit accomplished by Christ happens the very moment one is born again. I think it is the moment that he is immersed by the Spirit. And there are so many blessings associated with the Spirit in us. This baptism of the Spirit has so many wonderful blessings for the Christian life. We are sealed by the Spirit, Paul tells us in Ephesians. Sealed by that Spirit. We have a guarantee of our inheritance. And that's the Spirit. We are empowered to live righteously Because of the Spirit. Like, now we can live righteously. You know that old poem, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The wings is the Spirit of God allowing us to accomplish His will. The Spirit, as Galatians teaches us, bears fruit in our lives. And the Spirit unites us, people from many different walks of life and ethnicities, into one family, one body, the body of Christ. Again, isn't the gospel amazing? What God does through Christ is amazing. He takes away our sin, deals with it fully, and He baptizes us with the Spirit We are indwelt by the Spirit because of the gospel. So John is quick to say, you guys are all amazed at me. You guys are all amazed at me because I am not like everyone else. I'm, I'm wearing camel skins for clothing. I eat honey and locusts. I baptize with water. That amazes you. But you have no idea what you ought to be amazed at. This one, 
Jesus. Behold him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world and baptizes not with mere water, but with the very Spirit of God. He ought to be the focus of your amazement and the focus of your faith and your hope and your confidence. Behold him, look to him, behold the Lamb. He will take away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. God's Spirit descended and remains on him. Confirmation to John that this is the one. He is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Behold him. And I just, again, want you to think about how practical that is for your life today. How practical it is for you to behold him. I counsel people all the time who are weary. Weary because of their struggle with sin. Weary because of the cares of this world. Weary because of worry. Weary because of grief. Weary because they feel like no one cares about them at all. And you know what my advice to you this morning is? I mean it gently and sincerely. Behold the Lamb. Behold the one who takes away your sin. So you are now and forever forgiven by God. I mean, you struggle with your sin. I know, I get that. You struggle with your sin. But the Lamb has taken our sin from us and paid for it. You ought not to struggle with your forgiveness because that has been accomplished by Christ through this Lamb. Behold Him, my weary brothers and sisters, the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Let me just conclude this today by reading that passage from Revelation. I, I didn't know that Thomas was going to read it this morning. I guess I should have known, but I, I didn't look. And so I'm going to read it again because I think it's helpful for us. We've looked back many thousands of years in the Bible to see the shadow of God's plan in the Lamb, in Genesis and in Exodus. And we look to the fullness of times 2,000 years ago in real time when this happened. And John saw the Lamb of God coming the testimony of John the Baptist about the Lamb. Now let's set our gaze and our hope and our joy ahead on the Lamb at the very end of the age. So this is Revelation 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. You can listen to it devotionally. You can read it however you'd like. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 says, Then I saw... In the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open this scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down, and they worshipped. Behold the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, I pray, we pray together, one last time, that you, by a miracle of your grace, will give us eyes to behold. Eyes to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that our confidence would be in nothing else. In no one else, not in our idols, not in ourselves, but in Christ and in him alone. In Jesus, I pray. In his name, I pray. Amen.